It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You there? Been banging around in this great big city. Fast money and the life will never show you no pity. Oh, I work hard trying to make my bones. But times have changed and I just got to Good morning and welcome to the Transparency Project radio podcast on the Inside Lens Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. My name is Denny Griffin. And my usual partner and producer, Delilah Jones, is unavailable today, so I'm going to be going solo as the host. And my guest today is Mark Hoover. Mark is a freelance writer and writes a weekly column for the Claremont, Ohio Sun. He has also written articles for The Examiner, now AXS.com, Huffington Post, Verblio, and Blasting News. Since childhood, he has had a fascination with true crime and the paranormal. He has even lived in a haunted house and is a believer in the supernatural. Additionally, as a published author, he has earned a B.S. in business administration and a master's in accounting, both from Indiana Wesley, Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. In February 2020, his column in The Sun has been named to receive a Hooper Award presented by the Ohio News Media Association for the best original column in Ohio. He is guaranteed to place in the top three. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Denny. Thanks for having me. It's um, want to wish you first a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks, sir. You too. <laughs> Thank you. And I read one of your articles in your column the title is eric holmes from funny guy to killer now that was uh as i say i was fascinated by it and uh it, it was actually a little scary uh how close you may have come to uh to meeting your end at the hands of this individual so if you would i'd like you to take our re- our listeners through that story, uh, you know, exactly how it came down and how uh, your life may have been spared uh, because of your mother. Sure. Um, well, it, it all goes back to the 1980s, sometime back in 1989, where I was a college student. Um, I was working on my bachelor's degree, but I was also working at another restaurant uh, called Ryan Steakhouse, which is since gone. But 
I wasn't sure what I wanted to do career-wise. So what I did was I spoke to somebody in management, and they told me that they recommended that I possibly look into a manager training program at another restaurant because I was too young to enter their program. So I uh, took a leave from college, and uh, well, after one of the semesters was over, and I applied for a position as a manager trainee at a restaurant called Shoney's. Not sure if you've ever heard of it, but it's called Shoney's Big Boy, but it's a really popular chain down south. I mean anybody down south is probably pretty familiar with Shoney's. It's um, like a Frisch's. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Frisch's, but they have um, – they're famous for their breakfast bar. Uh, which you know they serve eggs, bacon, all that. You just pay one price, and it's pretty much all you can eat. You know, breakfast food. But you know, and they have sandwiches and things like that. But um, anyway, I applied for a manager training position with Shoney's in Greenwood. It was in Green the it was in Greenwood, Indiana, and I got hired, and I started the training program in Greenwood, and I think it was like a three a three month program or something. Where I had to work, I learned I had to learn all the positions, and then I had to learn the financial part of it. So I, you know, could do everything: could cook, wait tables, and then the closing duties, opening duties. Pretty much, they taught me, you know, the whole the the workings of of running that restaurant. And one night, um, my parents came in to see me, and. I'll never forget it, but my mother came in with my dad, and they sat down at a booth, and my mom was just looking around, and I knew something was wrong with my mom, and I asked my mom, well, what's what's wrong? And she's like, you need to quit. I said, quit what? She's like, you need to quit working here. She's like, I don't like it. I'm like, what? She's like, I, I don't know. I just have a feeling that you know this isn't a safe place for you to be. And I just don't like it. I just think that there's something telling me that you need to give up working here. Just go back to school, you know, go finish your degree and go find something else to do, but you need to leave. You know, and I just kind of laughed at it and I was like, mom, you're just being paranoid. You know, you know, it's, <laughs> it's okay. It's, you know, this is Greenwood. It's a safe area, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm, I'm fine. And you know, she just didn't like the idea of me working there. So after I finished the training program, what happened was they had given me a store to go work at, and it was in Castleton, Indiana. Uh, it's in Indianapolis, but Castleton's a, a pretty popular area out out there in Indianapolis, and it, you know it's got shopping centers and it's it's just a really nice area. It's not really an area that you would consider high crime, but anyway. After leaving the Greenwood store, I eventually went to work at this store that I was going to be permanently signed to in Castleton, and it it seemed okay. I mean, I you know it was a job, but along the way, I ended up becoming friends, really good friends, with a young lady named Teresa Blossel, and Teresa was another manager there. And she was probably the first friend that I made there because me and her worked together every shift pretty much. And she was like a dining room manager, I believe. And I got to know her. And she was in her 20s. She was a very pretty girl, very, very attractive. Her boyfriend also worked there. He was an assistant manager. 
but she had a four-year, a three or four-year-old son. I can remember she was to always talk to me about him, and then I can remember her dad used to come in regularly, and I used to talk to her dad. I got to know him. You know, he said that he didn't really get to spend a lot of time with her because she worked so much. So he would come in, have coffee, and you know, it was his way to get to see his daughter and talk to his daughter. And you could just tell by how they talked to each other that you know they were really close. And I got to like him, so you know I really felt like I got to know her. And then there was another manager that worked there. Uh, his name was Charles Irvin. Charles, I didn't really get to know Charles too well because Charles was in the military. He was in the Navy, and he had just gotten out. And one of the assistant general manager had offered him a job. They were best friends, I guess, growing up, and he had offered him a job to come to since or to you know Indy. And work in management. So I, I guess Charles must have lived in Virginia or something, and he moved. He relocated to Indianapolis for this job. So like I said, I really didn't get to know him, but I knew Teresa. But then there was a guy that I worked with. His name was Eric Holmes. Eric worked on the salad bar. Uh, Eric was an African-American man, and I worked with Eric and Teresa pretty much every shift. So the three of us worked together constantly. So I really got to know both of them. But Eric was – well, I think – I don't know if he was slow, mentally challenged or what the deal was with him, but I detected that you know, maybe he wasn't intellectually all there upstairs. But, I mean, he was fine. I mean, he was a good worker. Um, if I was his manager, so I worked directly with him. And you know, it was just funny because I used to talk to him all the time. Me and him had many, many, many conversations about – I mean nothing serious, just about the job and just funny stuff, and he would just make me laugh because the thing was with Eric that I remember was every time a pretty woman would come into the restaurant, Eric would tell me, hey, Mark, hey, Mark, come here. <laughs> He'd be like, take a look at that lady right there, you know. and Eric would point out all these really attractive women to me. So I was like, oh, okay, Eric, yeah, that's cool, you know. but he never – he never struck me as somebody that was dangerous, you know, or just a bad guy. I mean, Eric was just a pretty normal guy. I mean, I thought, you know, nothing of it. But um anyway, after a while, I don't know, after I was there for a little while, I I don't know, I just I just kind of felt kind of restless there. I just felt like maybe it wasn't what I needed to do was be there. Maybe I should listen to my mom and go back to school. So, I you know, talk to my mom and everything, and my mom still stuck to it. You know, my mom said, hey, Mark, you know, you, you still I, – I don't like you working there. I think you need to quit, quit working that, for that company. Just go back to school. And, you know, we had deep talks because I talked to my mom about everything. I mean my mom is very, very wise. Um, so I decided, you know what, I'm going to listen to my mom. I didn't listen to her that much when I was a kid like a lot of us do, don't, but I went ahead and listened to her, and I said, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and just take her advice. So what I did was I turned in my uh, two weeks' notice, and I was preparing to go back to college. So what happened was I think it was nine – I picked up my final paycheck, and I believe it was November the 7th of 1989. It was nine days before – the incident. But when I came to pick up my last check, I talked to Teresa. She was there working. And, you know, I told her I was going to go back to college and finish up my degree and, you know, what just other things that I was going to do. And, 
you know, I wished her well, and she told me that, you know, she liked working there, and I think her goals was to eventually become a store manager. She was really motivated and really smart, and uh, she seemed to really, really enjoy the, the restaurant field, the hospitality business, you know, and whereas more than I did. So, you know, we shook hands or whatever, and I said goodbye to her. And um, probably nine or ten days after I had last seen her, I believe it was November the 16th, I was watching the news, and I saw that there was a robbery at that Shoney's, and two managers were killed. So I, I didn't know who died. I didn't know anything about you know the robbery, so I started following it pretty closely on the newspaper and everything. And then I saw the story where Eric Holmes and two brothers that worked there – I believe they both worked in the dish room. I don't think I knew those two guys, but they had come back to the store and robbed it, and what happened was uh, Teresa, Charles, and another employee. Her name was Amy. I, did, I didn't know her either. But uh, they were leaving the store, and they had the till in their hand. I don't know. It was a couple thousand dollars cash or whatever, and they were going to make a nightly deposit. And Eric and another one of the one of the brothers was in the car, and the other brother came with him. And they approached, you know, the three. And I guess Eric had a knife. And what happened was Eric ended up stabbing all three of them. You know, he stabbed he stabbed the Amy in the back several times. And then he stabbed Charles. From what I understand, he stabbed him in the face like 20 or 30 times in the face. I mean, from what I understand, it was unrecognizable. And then he stabbed Teresa in the back three or four times. Well, Teresa and Charles both died at the scene. But the girl, Amy, who the waitress didn't die, Eric had thought he killed her. She played dead. And then what happened was after um, – they left with the money. She was able to crawl back into the manager's office and call 911. Now, you have to remember back in these days, this was 1989, there were no cell phones. So she had to use the office manager's phone, and she called for help. And then the police came, and they found Charles and Teresa both deceased, and they got Amy to the hospital, and she survived and was able to eventually testify against Eric in court. Which led to his conviction, and he was eventually set sent to death, placed on de- in death row. So he's on death row today as we speak. I mean, this happened 30 years ago, and he's still sitting on death row. But I think he got sent to death row maybe four years. It took like four years, maybe in 1993 he was sentenced. But um, since then, you know, I've thought I always I'll never forget it. I mean, I always think about the experience and I think back and I've talked to my mom and thank my mom, you know, and my mom was really shocked when she found out what happened. And I told when I told her and she was like, see, I told you, she said, I told you I knew something was going on. She says, call it mother's intuition, but I knew you had to quit working there. And she said, I have a feeling that had you continued working there. There's a probability that you could have been there that night and you would have died that night. You know? And I'm like, well, mom, I, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know if Eric would have done that. I mean, me, me and Eric were okay. I mean, but she says, no, no. And she goes, no, you wouldn't have been. So she says, I just knew what it was just you needing to leave. 
and, and I've thought about it a lot over the years, and um, my mom was right. I mean, she really was, and I, I've learned that sometimes, you know, you have to listen to your mother's intuition when they tell you something. You know, they know. Your parents are smart. They know. They know stuff. But um, I've spoke to I've I've been in touch with a with a couple people that were familiar with the incident, and one of the police officers who had come to the scene, who had arrived at the scene, had messaged me and him and corresponded on the uh, internet, and he was telling me how um, it was probably the most horrific scene he'd ever seen in his entire life as a law enforcement officer period ever i mean he said the blood the gore he told me that even today all these years later it still gives him nightmares and i'm thinking well i can't even imagine what this scene looked like i mean all the blood and i mean it was a gory scene is what he told me and uh for what i understand um a friend that that was friends with the surviving waitress told me that she had to go through like counseling, and he said that she changed her name, and she has like had a low profile on life. I guess she doesn't want to talk to the media. She doesn't want to talk to anybody about it, and the guy told me that um, it's really affected her life so bad that she changed her life. So, I mean the consequences of what this guy did, I mean it's… It's given people unforgettable memories. It's destroyed families because her son, will, Teresa's son, will never know his mom. You know, it happened when he was little, so he'll never get to know what a what a good woman she was. And then I think about her dad too. I mean, they were so close, you know. And the dad just I I can't even imagine what he's going through. I I mean, it's one thing to lose. You, you're not supposed to bury your children. They're supposed to bury you. I know that's an old saying, but you know, he would end up having to bury his daughter, and I I just can't imagine that. And, and, you know, and it's one thing to lose your child to a car accident. And it's one thing to lose your child to cancer or some kind of an illness, but she was brutally murdered. I mean, for no reason. And later on, I found out I was because I was kind of curious about the motive. And I mean, this was big, big, big news in Indianapolis. I mean, it was huge. Everybody in Indianapolis knew about it, and people still know about it because it's considered one of the more grisly crimes in, in Indianapolis. But um, apparently what happened was um, Eric had liked this girl, Amy, uh, this waitress, and he was harassing her. And from what I understand, you know, he like pinched her butt and he was touching her. And she had told the managers about it. And um they warned him, you know, leave her alone, you know, stop touching her, stop making sexual comments to her, just leave her alone. You know, she's not interested, she's just here to work. And they were nice to him. They didn't fire him immediately. I guess they gave him a they gave him a second chance, you know, they were just like kind of let it go and let him continue working there. But then I guess one night – the night it happened, the murder happened, um, I think he either said or touched her inappropriately or did something to her, but she told on him, and from what I understand, they fired him that night. They either fired him or they sent him home for the night. So he was sent home, and um, from what I understand, Eric was enraged about it, you know, and he said you know, he was going to get some payback. 
he was going to get back at her. So this whole thing was directed at Amy, and then I believe it was Charles that sent him home. So the whole attack was directed at those two. Teresa was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. So um, it was a revenge thing. It wasn't really about the money. I don't think Eric gave a damn about the money. You know, so he was able to get the two guys in the, the, that worked in the district or whatever to go up there and help him rob them, rob the place. But I guess that was the front he was going to use. But the whole motivation, for understand, was he was angry and he was going to get revenge against who he blamed got him fired. And that's why he did it. But, um, yeah, it's like I said, it's, it's something that happened to me 30 years ago. And I will never, ever ever forget i'll never forget eric i'll never he's he is burned into my brain forever just as charles and just as Teresa are all three of those people their memories is just burned in my life i'll never forget it and of course like i said my mother you know my mother that warning my mom gave me i mean it was just weird the whole thing was just weird but it kind of bothers me that he's not dead that eric's not dead i feel like eric should have been executed but I believe because of his IQ, maybe that has something to do with him being alive. And I, I don't think I don't think he'll ever be executed. I mean, he's been sitting on death row for all these years, and he'll never be executed probably. But when people talk about, I consider myself somebody that's in a kind of a rarity. You know, most people, thank God for this, cannot say they know anybody that's on death row. I mean, you ask a hundred people, do you know anybody on death row, or have you ever been friends with anybody on death row? I'm sure out of the hundred, they'll all say, no, no, heck no. I don't know anybody like that. But I'm one of the people that unfortunately can say, yes, I do know somebody on death row. And I've had people ask me, you know, have you ever written to Eric? Do you ever contact him? Do you want to contact him? And I'm like, no, absolutely not. I mean, I, I have had some consideration of possibly writing him a letter, but I don't know what I'd say to him. I don't even know if he'd remember me. But, um, it, I'll probably never, I'll probably never write anything to him. I mean, I've just tried to put him out of my life, you know. I'm just glad he's locked up or he can't hurt anybody else. But, you know, the whole lesson of this is you, you you have to ask yourself when you run into somebody, a coworker, you've run into a family member, you have to ask yourself, do I really, really know this person? Is this person capable of committing a murder? Would this person kill me if I stood in the way of something that they wanted, whether it be money or some kind of a possession? If they wanted it bad enough, would that person be willing to kill me over it to get it? You know, I mean there's a lot of things that go through your mind that are like that. You know, but more than anything, you just wonder, do you really, really, truly know anyone? And, you know, people have to be careful about who they trust, you know, and never assume anything because don't assume that everybody's always got your best interest at heart because they don't, you know. And people, when they get angry, they don't think. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of these, you know, I think a lot of people are murdered over that because people lose their temper in that, you know, in that moment, you know, they, do commit a crime and it's like a murder or, or they, they, they don't think they're not thinking i mean i'm sure eric right now regrets doing what he did but in a moment of brief moment of anger he just snapped 
and he let his emotions take over, and he just did what he did. So, you know, but you know, we don't we don't know what people are capable of. So that's pretty much my take on what happened to me back in 1989 and my experience with Eric Holmes. So, uh, Mark, do you uh, do you feel that had you not left your employment at Shoney's that there is a reasonable chance you would have been there that night? Uh, it's a possibility. I mean, but I've asked myself, you know, I don't know how, how would I have handled the same situation that Charles was in? I mean, if you're a manager in a restaurant, if you're in any business, if there's sexual harassment going on, you can't let it go. You have to intervene. So most likely I would have probably, well, definitely taken the same action that Charles would have. I would have probably had to fire him, let him go or whatever. Um, and then, in, you know, he would have been pissed off at me. I usually didn't work night shifts, but I knew that they were going to start having me do it because I was supposed to work and kind of get an idea of night and day shifts. But in the restaurant business, man, it's just fluid. I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked in restaurants, but you just never know. I mean, if you can work days, you can work nights. I mean, you work weekends, you work holidays, you know, you don't ever get back-to-back days off. I mean, the hours are just crazy. You don't, it's not like working in an office job where you get set hours. Restaurant management is just fluid, the hours. You just kind of plug in wherever you're needed, you know. So, but, um, you know, who knows? I'm just glad to know that I never found out. That's all I can say about that. Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, right. So it's it's pretty safe to assume then that uh, that night that this took place, Eric probably wasn't there with the, with the focus on the money. He was there yeah. for revenge or payback, as you said. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't a case of where these three individuals, the, the two managers and the waitress, were resisting or putting up a struggle. He apparently just came there to do damage. Right, and that's what he did. He just came there to kill him, and that's that was his motivation. I mean, he wasn't there about the money. You know. Now, did the two brothers that were his accomplices did they get convicted of anything? Um, they both got tried. I don't know what happened to them. I'm, I I know. I think they both got sentences, but I think the one brother that stayed out in the car. I don't. I think he got a lighter sentence because he 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 was just the driver, and the other brother. I don't really know what happened to him either because he didn't kill anybody. I mean, he was there, and I I don't even know if if he knew Eric was going to do any killing. I mean, maybe he just thought that they were just there to rob, just to rob the place, which I don't get the logic because they would have been able to identify him. So I don't really know what happened to the two brothers, but. I think that they did do some time, but I don't even know if they're still incarcerated or not. I just know about Eric. So, now, I, I don't want to get off into a death penalty uh, debate, but yeah, I I share. I know you were talking about Eric, but generally mm-hmm. speaking, I believe that if a state or the federal government, whoever has the death penalty, still has it. And mm-hmm. they use that uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a criminal case uh, when they get a conviction. Uh, 
I the one of the arguments is that it costs more to put a person to death than it does to give them a life sentence. And and I think a lot of the justification from the anti-death penalty side is that uh, where that expense comes from is because it costs the same for food, basically, you know, whether whether it's a death row inmate or a uh, or a general population inmate, they eat to get the same food and that kind of thing, uh, medical care, all that kind of stuff. It seems that the bulk of the expenses are in the appeals process. That can be very expensive, and it can go on for years and years and mm-hmm. years and years. Um, the pro-death penalty, say, if used properly, the death penalty might be a deterrent. But I don't think it's as much of a deterrent when when the uh, inmate outlives the survivors of his victims. And, yeah. you know, in this case, 30 years, or in some cases, 40. And I, I, I think the death penalty, if you believe in it, I think uh, loses some of its potential impact as a deterrent when it goes on and on and on. And that, of course, runs up the expenses, which gives the anti-death penalty folks uh, uh, a talking point, you know, about the cost of this thing. So I don't really want to get into that. I just uh, couldn't help it after hearing what what your thoughts were about Eric and and still being alive after all these years that Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of triggered. And I, I have very strong feelings about that. So I just wanted to, I wanted to vent yeah. temporarily. Uh, yeah. Now, yeah. Let's, let's move on, uh, Mark, to your column in general. Uh, this was one okay. particular article in that column. But um, what types of stories do you do? I know it's a weekly column. And uh, tell us about what you generally write about in that column. Okay. Well, when I first started it, um Actually, it was hard to get because I contacted a lot of different papers, and I even the Sun, they rejected me a couple times, two or three times, I think. You know, we're not interested, sorry. But then they eventually they got a new editor, and I told her, I said, well, look, you know, I I I want to write a column. My goal is to become syndicated. Which, when you become syndicated, that's pretty much whenever you're doing a comic strip or a uh, column. A lot of them, a lot of the people that do it, your dream is to become syndicated. Now, there's what happens is with the syndication is there's agencies that will represent you, and they will sell your column or your comic strip, like you know Charlie Brown or Garfield or whatever. All these people were syndicated. Uh, Dear Abby, you know, syndicated. All of them are syndicated. And the thing is, what you have to do is it has to be. They get so many requests. So they're very picky about who they select. They they want to take somebody I think is a new client that they are sure that they can sell, you know, their articles to. So what happens is once you get a, a, a syndication agrees to take you on as a client, they will market your work to everybody all over the planet. And um, you know, so you just write the column or the comic strip one time and they sell it, you know, maybe a hundred, a thousand times over. And then you split the percentage – you get a percentage of whatever they sell your column for. 
I think a lot of times it's maybe 40-60, you get 40, they get 60, or 50-50, somewhere in there. But, I mean, it's still the exposure. It's worth it. Um, but anyway, that was my dream, and it still is, and I'm still working to get there. But after a few rejections, I almost gave up. But then, you know, they had a new editor at the Sun, and I contacted this brand new editor, and I said, hey, you know, my name is Mark. You know, it's my dream to become a syndicated columnist. I want to write a column. Um, I said, I can't find anybody willing to give me a chance because, yeah, the thing you have to understand is with newspapers are they have limited space. You know, and as you know, you read a newspaper, they only have so many pages. They only have so much space that they can use and, to put material in, and it's like, you know, do we want to do we want to put this guy in our newspaper? I mean, you know, uh, well, no, we don't want to waste our space, our limited space on this guy. But I finally got somebody that was like, you know what? She's like, go ahead and send me some samples. She goes, I'll, I'll give you a serious, some serious consideration. So I was like, okay. So I wrote a few things and sent them to her. But they were more like, I don't know, personal experiences, things like that. Like I think I wrote something about my mother-in-law. But she took a look at it, and she's like, you know what? I like it. She's like, let's go ahead and work. We'll go ahead and work with you and set up a deal with you to work with you. And you know, and this was in September 2015. And I've submitted something every week for almost – for over four years now. It's been, what, September, October, December? So I've been doing this now for four years and three months, and I've never missed a deadline. So I send in something every week. They take it. They can – you know, sometimes they'll change – they can edit it. They can change the title, which they often do. The title I give – isn't usually what they use. So they use something else, but it's fine. It's part of the deal. And if they edit it, that's fine too. I have no issue with that. But um, so I started off with just after I got accepted, I just started writing things about, you know, what personal experiences. But then after a while, I started thinking, you know, what are a couple things that really interest me? Because I wanted to focus on something that really interested me. And I've been a true crime fan since I was a child. I mean, I used to read these true crime magazines that that come out of the grocery store that you could buy at the grocery store. My mom used to buy this for me, and then I used to also subscribe to uh, Alfred Hitchcock years ago. Um, and I also lived in a haunted house too at one time, which I wrote a column about, two part column about my experience living in a haunted house in Kentucky. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to write about those two things, and then I'm going to find some in, some stories that involve both, where somebody is murdered and People have reported seeing their ghosts after they've been murdered. So then I started putting together stories that involved, you know, murders and the paranormal. So from there, it's now it's just pretty much just focused on true crime. But now that um, I've kind of changed, thinking some more changing. Whereas I think I want to focus more on unsolved homicides. So when I've interviewed a few people from my uh, podcast. I've turned those into columns. Like there's a there's a couple of them that I've that I've done that with. I've turned them into columns. So I'm probably going to switch over to writing a lot more about those kind of stories. But you know that's the good thing about a column is you never know. You know you can write about whatever you want. You know I mean it's kind of it's your opinion. So that's kind of what I've been doing with that. And then just recently my editor contacted me and told me, which I've never received any awards for anything I've ever written. And I've been a freelance writer for years. I've done I've written stuff for other people or other websites and let them use it on their website as create, you know, as their own, as a ghostwriter. 
But uh, yeah, so he messaged me, sent me an email uh, right before Christmas, and he said, "Hey, Merry Christmas, man! I got a surprise for you." I'm like, "Well, what's that?" And he's like, "Well, he's like, we just found out that your column has been named as a for a Hooper Award, um, but we won't know your placement until February. But you're going to either be first, second, or third is one of the best columns in." Ohio, and you know, it's a, it goes for Ohio newspapers, but it's still an honor to be recognized for your work, you know. So I'm pretty excited about that, and I'm kind of hoping that it'll lead to. I mean, who knows what doors will open? Winning an award can help you with credibility, and you know, other things. But for the most part, I think writing a uh, column gives me a lot of credibility when I contact people. Because I've learned that you know when I when you contact people that have had somebody murdered in their family, maybe a true with a you know that they have an unsolved case, cold case, they're leery about the people who contact them because you get scammers contact. I mean, unfortunately, scammers contact these people. You know, like you know, I know information about your case, but you'll have to pay for it. And some of these families are so desperate for answers, they they will do that. They will pay money. Or you get they get contacted by psychics, you know. Well, I know information about your case, and you know maybe build up false hope, things like that. So they they get contacted by probably quite a few different people. But when you know when I contact people, you know, and they ask, well, who are you? You know, why should I talk to you about anything? You know, I don't know you. I'm like, okay, I know you don't know me, but go to the Claremont Sun. You know, go to my website. Take a listen to some of my other podcasts, but go to the, the newspaper that I write for. I was like, there's my picture, all my columns. You can read. You can see. I'm a genuine person. So once they do that, it's like any suspicions they have are gone. You know, So it's, it helps me get in the door You know, as somebody that they can trust. So, I mean, for me, that's just the perfect thing. You know, So, yeah, yeah that's about it with the column. <laughs> This business is is an awful lot about credibility, and uh, yes. you know, getting people to cooperate and and proving, uh, you know, that you're the real deal, the real thing. So, I before we move on to talking about your podcast, I just wanted to tell you or congratulate you for your perseverance after being rejected uh, a few times by the Sun and uh, continuing to pursue your efforts, and eventually that perseverance paid off. Uh, So I want to congratulate you on that and and about your upcoming award. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now, now we had, uh, you and I, when we talked previously, uh, Mm -hmm. we talked uh, about your Catch My Killer podcast. Yes. I, I was I would want to say I was surprised. Let me say I was pleased to learn that the goal uh the subject matter and the goals of, of that podcast are very similar to the transparency project in that um they involve cold cases and, and trying mm-hmm. to help get justice for the uh for the victim and their survivors. So would you uh, would you be willing, Mark, please, to uh, talk about your podcast, uh, how you happen to start it, uh, and that type of thing, and go from there? Sure. Well, I will say that originally I had no desire to do a podcast. It never even 
Never even crossed my mind. I didn't want to do it. I, I didn't even know what a podcast was. I had never listened to any um, until maybe, I don't know, a year ago. This was the first time I'd ever listened to one. I mean, I've heard people tell me about them, but I, I just didn't have any desire to listen to them. Um, but what I did was I started listening. I just thought, you know, one day I'll just go ahead and start listening to a few. So I, I, I'm a podcast junkie now because once I got – I started listening, I got hooked. So now there's about 10 or 11 or 12 of them that I listen to faithfully, and I, and I actually – it's like being a kid for Christmas, man. Every like Monday when I get to my office at work. You know, I always look forward to the, to the new episodes, the ones that I listen to, and uh, I, you know, I listen to them through the whole week. You know, I'll listen to hours, you know, of of podcasts, and I'm always looking for new ones to listen to because if they're interesting, I'm interested. But I, I only listen to true crime. I mean, there are some paranormal ones that I listen to, but most of the ones I listen to are true crime because I love the education because some of the ones I listen to are really good, and I learn a lot. You know, and I learned, you know, from listening to their guests and just learning about these cases and learning about, you know, new uh, DNA procedures. And I learn a lot from podcasts. So to me, it's educational. But um, I was thinking, you know, I I, I was like, I do kind of want to do one, just experiment. So what I did was I did start a podcast about a year ago. And I was just kind of going along with what everybody else did. I mean, I was doing research on cases, and I was just kind of, um, you know, just reading from a script and telling a story. And I, you know, after about 20 episodes in, and I was also doing interviews with people with supernatural experiences. But like after about 20-something episodes in, I thought, you know, this, this isn't fulfilling to me. I, I don't want to do whatever. That's what everybody else does with the podcast. They write a script. They read the script. I mean, it's great, but you know, some of these people are really masterful storytellers, really good storytellers. But I don't think I'm a good. I don't consider myself really a good storyteller. So I thought, well, me not being a great storyteller and me not really liking to do the research on these cases, I need to find. An, I need to find a niche. I need to find something that that I want to do. So just reading columns and everything that I had written and thinking about it, I thought, you know what, why don't I do something completely different? Let me do a podcast where I can actually help somebody. And who can I help? You know, so I start thinking, who 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 is it out there that I could possibly help? And I thought, well hell, I've been reading all these, you know, listening to all this stuff my whole life about cold cases and I've always been fascinated with that. Let me see if I can do something to help people with cold cases. So then I went to thinking, well, let me start talking to people. Instead of me reading a script about cold cases, why don't I actually talk to the real victims? And I have to tell you, man, I was really terrified to, to contact these people. I mean, I mean, now I'm comfortable with it. I've I've done a bunch of interviews already, and I've got a bunch of them already recorded. And and they email, I get emails and you know messages all the time now. But at first, I was really scared to do it because I thought. You know, what am I going to say to these people, you know, and, you know, what what am I going to say to these people? You know, they're already suffering and they're probably being bothered by other people. And, you know, and, you know, I, I don't have I don't know if I have any credibility or anything to even talk to them. So then I kind of made a plan and I thought, you know what, I'll use my credibility as a columnist. You know, that'll help me get in the door, I think. So once I started, you know, talking to people, it seemed like, as I had mentioned about my column 
before. You know, it kind of eased people's minds a little bit, and I think it got people to trust me that were willing to tell me things because of that because they could go and read the columns and say, well, if this guy is in a newspaper, you know, he must be some have some kind of credibility, and he's been doing it for over four years, so you know, there must be something to him. So, um, you know, I start thinking what I'm going to do is I'm going to be totally different with my podcast. I want to do something completely different. I want to focus on the victims' families, and instead of me telling the story, I want them to tell the story. I'm going to let them tell tell me and everybody else what's going on, how they feel, their thoughts, their personal feelings. And it, and it can be kind of sad sometimes because you know, I, you can hear the pain in their voices, and it's very disheartening. I mean, to hear those kind of, you know, to hear that in their voices. And sometimes when I'm talking to people, they have to, they'll, they're like, you know, give me a minute. They have to stop and they start to cry. And that really gets me, man, when they start crying on the phone, you know, and I'm like, because I've dug up memories, you know, that maybe they wanted to forget. I mean, I spoke to a woman recently whose son was murdered, and it was. I could just tell it was so hard for her to get through. She had such a hard time talking about her son because he was her best friend. He was her firstborn. He was her best friend, and they were really, really, really super, super, super tight. I mean, she loved this. She loved this this boy probably more than anything in the world. And he was brutally murdered, and she doesn't have any justice because she doesn't know. She she thinks she knows. She knows. I think she knows who killed him. Her son. But she can't prove it, and the police can't prove it yet either. But she knows because she was with a couple guys. He was with a couple guys, and that's when he died. And they were the last ones to be with him. But you know, again, she can't prove it. And um, so you know, it's just like I thought. Well, okay, I'll do something different. I'll let the people talk, and you know, and try to help these people get their message out. And then hopefully we can get some tips or anything, generate anything to help these people and their suffering. You know, I mean, I know it won't bring it won't bring their loved one back, but you know, at least they know what happened to their loved one. They know why they died, how they died, who did it, and they can kind of, you know, it'll bring some closure to their lives. And you know, so I'm thinking that's kind of what I want to do, and that's pretty much been the basis of what I do. You know, just let people tell their story because I think a lot of these people want to tell their story. Deep down, when you really think about it, they want to tell somebody, you know, about their situation or their loved ones. They like to talk about them. They want the world to know, you know. And I think with with my podcast, I tell people that I talk to, okay, I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to focus on his or her death unless that's what you want. I prefer to focus on them while they were alive, like knowing, you know, what kind of a person they were. Did they go to college? Did they go to high school? What would did they graduate from high school? I mean, did they play sports? Were they in a choir? What did they what kind of things did they want to do with their lives before they died? And I kind of want people to listen and understand these individuals as human beings and not just as a death statistic. Cuz you know, you listen to a lot of podcasts and they really don't talk about the you don't, really, you don't you don't feel like you know the person, you know. They just kind of, you know, regurgitate a bunch of facts about a case, and you know, so and so was killed, and so and so was killed by so and so, and so and so 
grew up in a, you know, he was an abused child and he grew up in a bad home and he robbed places, robbed banks and, and he robbed drug dealers. And he did this and he did that. And he was a dirt bag, you know, and, that, and that's what you get. You hear a lot about the criminal, you know, a lot of the podcasts, all of them, well, most of them, they just focus on the criminal. I mean, with the exception of the unsolved ones, you don't know. But even with the unsolved ones, you don't, they still don't focus. They focus more on the crime of what happened to the victim. But you never walk away feeling like you knew who the person was. And, you know, you got an idea of this, what kind of a person he or she was, you know, as a human being. And I think that's what I want to, that's what I want to push. I want people to know these kind of things, you know, that this was a good person. You know, this person had kids, you know, their kids missed this person. You know, this person was a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. You know, this person was an ACDC fan. You know, he liked rap music, rock music or rap music, or he liked country music. You know, just I just want people to know who these people were as people, if that makes any sense. But that's about it, yeah. That that absolutely makes sense. I just wanted to comment. You were talking about yeah. Uh, when you're doing interviews with the with the surviving survivors or the victims, um, how sometimes they break down and you you have to suspend for, to let them regain their composure. Um, yeah. When through the transparency project, uh, I wanted to tackle the issue, the cold case issue, two ways. One was through the podcast. The mm-hmm. second was getting the story out and writing in a book. So I, I did an anthology and uh, letting the survivors tell their story in their own words. I did a little editing, but other than that, this is the story uh, from the survivors. And when when I first uh, proposed the idea on, uh, on the Transparency Project Facebook page, I had, I believe it was just under 40 survivors who wanted to participate. Mm -hmm. And by the time we got done, we ended up with 19. Okay. It it was really, uh, you know, they, they had good intentions. They want answers. They want to keep the story alive. They want to keep the memory of their loved one alive. But Mm -hmm. when it came to have to relive the events and then to write about them, put them on paper, they just couldn't do it. And that's nothing derogatory. I can, I can understand it, but it's very emotional, emotionally yes. draining. And that, that yes. doesn't make them bad people. They had all, all the right intentions, but when reality struck, they just couldn't actually do it and continue to the end. So uh, I know it's a very emotional uh, situation, very tough. And, when you're doing the interviews, be it on your podcast or when I was going back and forth by email, uh, putting the the manuscript together, um, it you have to be understanding and patient because these yeah. are difficult issues, and you you know people need to be able to vent, but also be able to tolerate reliving these incidents so um anyway i i'm very excited about what you were doing uh with the uh yeah. the catch my killer and um i think uh 
I'd like to, uh, Mark, while we're talking here, extend an invitation to you if you are interested. The uh, our new website. Excuse me, we have uh, Facebook, but uh, we've just opened mm-hmm. uh, created a website for the Transparency Project, and we have a, a page called Our Team, and it's various mm-hmm. uh, old case investigators, bloggers, uh, reporters, uh, uh, people who run non-for-profit victim advocacy groups. But what we are doing, uh, and, and we're adding these people to the Our Team page, and uh, and they can post their columns or podcasts or whatever on our site because uh, you know if, if it's related to the cold case uh, issues. Yeah. So I'll extend an invitation to you now if you sure. would be interested in joining our Absolutely, team. Absolutely, man. I'd love to. Uh, we would uh, we would glad be glad to add you. Absolutely, I do. Yeah, I I would because I'm interested in anything, any project that will help somebody get some kind of closure, you know, for their case. Let me bring up real quick a story. I don't know if you saw this story, but this story fascinated me. I have shared it on my Facebook page, and it's been all over the media, so you've probably seen it. I don't remember what state it was in, but there was a cold case. I think it had been cold for like 15, 16 years old years ago where this woman uh, vanished, and um, there was a Facebook page where I guess the, the person who runs this page – it's a crime page, but the person is anonymous. I don't think anybody knows who this person is you know, who runs it. Uh, I, I don't know. She just keeps her – Identity a secret, but anyway, somebody contacted her recently, and they said, hey, there's a cold case from about 15, 16 years ago. Well, it's not a cold case. It's a missing persons case. This woman's missing. I know what happened to this woman. She was murdered by her sister-in-law, and she was buried somewhere. I can tell you where she was. I can tell you where the body is, so she gave the tip. To this woman running this Facebook crime page, and the woman gave the information to the cops. Sure enough, they went to the site and they dug this woman up. They dug where she was, you know, with a map or whatever, and they found this woman's body. She'd been dead and buried there like 15, 16 years ago. And what happened was they arrested her sister in law. Her sister in law had killed her dad years ago, but somehow. She got probation or something along the line. She didn't get like a lengthy sentence for killing her dad. So she murdered her dad, murdered her sister-in-law, and her brother is missing, is a missing person. So, I mean, I was like, wow. All this is uncovered from a tip that went to social media, that went to a social media page. I mean this person didn't even go to the cops. This person didn't feel comfortable telling the cops this information. This person just went to a crime page and reported it. So to me, I think – in my opinion, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I think that eventually we're going to get to a point where social media is going to help solve a lot of crimes. Because I think what's going to happen is a lot of people don't necessarily feel comfortable talking to the police. 
but they might feel comfortable talking to somebody that runs a a podcast or somebody that writes a you know a crime you know Facebook page or crime website like what you're talking about. They might feel comfortable going to you with the tip. So I think that after a while that we're going to see a lot more of these cases, you know, of people reporting stuff on in social media helping solve crimes. What do you think about that? I certainly certainly hope you're right, and uh, people yeah. like us are are out there trying to make that happen. So now, Mark, we're just about out of time. Before we have to mm-hmm. sign off, would you uh, tell the audience, please, because a lot of the uh, people who are listening and will listen to this podcast uh, are survivors, and if they are interested yeah. in uh, getting a guest spot on on your uh, Catch My Killer podcast, how would they go about that? How would they contact you? Um, They can email me at catchmykiller at gmail.com, or they can visit my webpage. It's www.themarkhob.com. Now, the spelling is a little off because it's a catch. It's a play on my name. My name is spelled with a C, but it's M-A-R-C-A-B-E.com. Or they can go to www.catchmykiller.com, and they can find a link to contact me there. But either you know through Facebook, my webpage, or the email me at my – like I said, my email. You can get a hold of me that way. So, But yeah, those are the best ways. Okay, Mark. We do have to go now. We're just about, uh, just about running All our right. full time limit. Uh, I want to thank you so much for for yes, agreeing to uh, to be on with me today, and Appreciate I will be it. in My touch pleasure. with you. Uh, uh, follow up on on uh, getting on our uh, our team page on our website. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you, sir. Have a good okay, have a good New Year. Okay, thank you and happy New Year. Thank you, Danny. All righty, bye. Bye bye. And to our audience, thank you very much for listening, and happy New Year to you. And until the next time. Stay safe. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.